to Georgia Realtors Realcast. I'm your host, Maura Neal. I hope you've been enjoying our podcast so far. If this is your first time tuning in, please make sure you visit garealcast.com for a few of our past episodes. We're still young, but we're definitely growing. And this year, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Georgia Realtors all year long. We're excited to have you with us. Our podcast calendar has gone a little topsy-turvy, as I'm sure you can imagine, since we are all adjusting to our new normal for now of self-quarantine, shelter in place, and figuring out how to do real estate and do life in this time of the coronavirus. I'm working to plan some episodes for you that I hope you'll find timely and interesting and to provide you with some education, but also some fun and entertainment while we're living through some very strange times. I hope that you and your families are staying well and healthy as we sail these uncharted waters. March is Women's History Month, and I thought it would be appropriate to sit down with some really inspiring women whom I see as role models and mentors. So this month, we have two pretty special interviews with some pretty fun and fantastic guests. I hope you enjoy. For our first Women's History Month episode, I had a really fantastic opportunity. Last month, the Georgia Realtors welcomed a very special guest to our February inaugural conference, Dorcas Helfant Browning. She joined us in order to install our 100th president of the Georgia Realtors, Farron W. King. While I had met Dorcas on a few previous occasions, it was at Farron's urging and reintroduction that I invited her to sit down for a very special episode of this podcast. And what a great way to celebrate Women's History Month by honoring NAR's first female president. Dorcas T. Helfant Browning, a native of Chesapeake, Virginia, was president of the National Association of Realtors in 1992. She was the first woman to lead the National Association and at the age of 45 was one of the youngest people to serve as NAR president at that point in the organization's history. She has been an NAR director since 1983 and taken on active roles in numerous national committees. She served as chairman of the Political Affairs, Government Affairs Strategy, Institute Advisory, and Nominating Committees, served as a trustee of the Realtors Political Action Committee, RPAC, and has been a member of the International Operations and Global Business and Alliances Committees. She was named a member of the Advisory Council of Fannie Mae in 1993. On the regional and local levels, Helfant Browning served as president of the Tidewater Board of Realtors in 1980 and the Virginia Association of Realtors in 1984. Both groups have honored her with their Realtor of the Year Award. Helfant Browning began her real estate career in 1967, shortly after the birth of her first child. Seven years later, she was the owner of her own firm, which affiliated with Coldwell Banker in 1989. She is currently a managing partner and principal broker with Coldwell Banker Professional Realtors in Virginia Beach. An active volunteer in her community, she was named Hampton Roads Woman of the Year in 1990 and has served for many years on the board of directors of the Hampton Roads Chamber of Commerce. She was president of the Tidewater Council of Boy Scouts in 2004 and served on the board of trustees of Human Bayside Hospital. In 1992, she received an honorary PhD in the humanities from Commonwealth College of Virginia. She was chairwoman of Tidewater Community College and currently serves on Virginia's State Board of Community Colleges. I cannot be more pleased or more honored to welcome her to the Georgia Realtors Realcast. Welcome to Realcast, Dorcas. It is such a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to be with you, Mara. I'm thrilled to have the chance to sit down with you today. Farron, of course, Farron W. King, our 100th president of the Georgia Realtors, told me a little bit about how he met you and how thrilled he and Rebecca are to have gotten to know you. And he made a special point of asking me if we could find a time to sit down. And of course, next month is Women's History Month. Absolutely. it, It seemed very appropriate. I think it is just lovely that Farron has invited you to install him. 
It's a banner year for us, of course, the 100th year of the Georgia Realtors. He gets to be the 100th president. He and I have discussed a good bit the honor he feels to have the opportunity to serve as president during such a historic year. And how appropriate is it then that thinking back to your installation as NAR president, yours was also a historic year as our first female president of the National Association. So tell me a little bit about going back to that moment as we prepare for Farron's installation tonight. What did it mean to you knowing that you were not just embarking on a great year in your leadership journey, but a historic year for our National Association? Uh, Being president of NAR was a highlight of just about anyone's life, male or female. Uh, Getting there was a tough journey for me. We had to break a glass ceiling, and I said, we, that's the team of people that helped me. Most of those happened to be men of influence in the association who had faith in my ability to lead, and that's a whole other story. But when you arrive at that event and the enormity and the responsibility and the weight of the organization and its hopes and dreams and vision for the future, and knowing that for me, the year before really was when I put in place the team that would be with me, mm-hmm. I knew that things must change. Right. And that my being president would be nothing but symbolic if I didn't make a difference. And I set out to engage many people who never had a shot at engagement or leadership in the process. And I was excited about it. That is exciting. But you mentioned that there were challenges. Tell me a little bit about what those challenges were. I feel like anyone who has the, the vision and the, the ambition and the goal to enter into a leadership path faces challenges of their own, but yours were very unique because of that glass ceiling. What were some of those challenges that you faced on the road to becoming president of the National Association of Realtors? Well, systems get entrenched in culture, and they get entrenched in tradition. Tradition is important, but tradition only can handicap you if you let it be the governance of tomorrow. Uh, in the year that I decided to run and my state decided to run me, and then the regional states that supported me decided that my candidacy was viable. We knew that the only way you'd ever get to be national president was to get the past president's endorsement. That was the shadow government at the time. Mm-hmm. It was politics, and is as it is in many organizations, then and today, that doesn't go away. Right. So we had to set out a plan to crack that ceiling by going around it you faced challenges that other other women who have followed in your footsteps probably have faced similar ones, but you really paved the way for a lot of them. What role have you had in the five subsequent females who have been president of the National Association? What has been your role or, or what, what ways have you influenced and encouraged and assisted them? Well, it's by breaking the system. Once the system changed and it directors and members realized that you did not have to go through the past presidents. And I speak with honor because those gentlemen served with dignity and, and served the association well. People began to wake up. We don't have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. We can go directly to the governing board, which is the board of directors in 50 states. Mm-hmm. And as a result, people have run of different sexual preferences, different genders, different colors. And we've had races go to the board of directors election. It's an open system now, and as long as you can prove and pay your own way in terms of looking forward to the future, sharing a vision, Mm -hmm. and being a contributor to the association, perhaps you will have people around you say, you have the qualities. We would like to see you run. We will help you run. It's not a solo journey. So in our 112-year history at the National Association, you mentioned we have our seventh female, our seventh, seventh woman coming up as president, which I, I love the fact that in the years since your presidency, we're seeing more and more women enter into those higher level leadership roles. It doesn't have to be president, just the visibility is there and the influence is there. So now when you're introduced as a past president or when it comes up that you were the first woman to be president with the perspective that you have now versus then, Do you look back and think, wow, we've come such a long way, or my goodness, we still have such a long way to go? I'm an optimist. I believe that people move at a pace of change. The country is changing. We're part of that change, and that change will accelerate, and it just doesn't include 
those of female gender. It's inclusive. It's inclusivity. It's diversity. I'm excited about it. But I will tell you that the one thing that people should not should never forget, and that is to network. The most valuable item a woman can do in leadership is to network with other women. When I was state president, there were only five or six of us who were state presidents. I decided to invite them all to coffee in my suite. We began to do that at every meeting of NAR, even after I was president, and the group kept expanding. We developed our own network, just of women who enjoyed each other because we were fighting the same battles for equality and voice Mm -hmm. and to make a difference. So I mentioned when we were coming up to to the suite to record that I sat down this morning with three of our Georgia past presidents, Jan Baker, Barbara Kennan, and Robin Lance. And we had a really interesting conversation about female friendships when we get to a higher level of leadership. Because in an industry that can be very competitive, as well as an industry that can make you feel like when you go to conference, you're seeing your extended family. Yes. So there's this dichotomy there. And what I love about the three of them, in fact, Robin, when I invited them, she called themselves the three musketeers. (laughs) Adult female friendships can be very complex, but they're also very rewarding. I love that you started that tradition of inviting those women to have coffee in your suite and encouraging that networking because I think the perception from the outside is that we can be very catty with each other and very competitive with each other as women. So how have you fought back against that stereotype or that cliche in addition to just what is behind closed doors, which is having coffee and strengthening those relationships? Well, I think we have to think of equality again. Women may be accused of being catty and what have you. Are men any less competitive? I mean, this is, I think they're worse if you come to know the joke. Yeah, they drink together and they're buddies, but women have that ability. Our problem is time. We all have busy lives, and many of us are jugglers. Many of the women out there today have children and responsibilities, and the networking time, other than when they're together professionally, is very limited. It's not like you're hanging out together. When you're single, you can do that. But once you enter a marriage and start a family, your life is far more complex. It's your family, your extended family, and therefore, when you see your girlfriends at the meetings, you're having a good time with them. But the bottom line is, that doesn't necessarily mean you're together away from it. We're busy people. We also know that unlike most men who've come up, we've had supportive spouses taking care of that family, but they have a lot of more independence than we do. Sure. And that will continue until society changes. Yes. I think that historic perspective of the men who enter into those roles have that support system at home that the women don't always necessarily have in the same way. And that ties in a lot. I think I hear a lot of conversation around wellness and work-life balance and harmony. But then you juggle that with we're entrepreneurs and we're business owners and we may be raising families. And I don't have children, but I still feel that I have a lot of responsibilities and obligations at home. When you see all of those things that eat up your time and, and other women's time, in addition to now we've got the added pressures of social media and everyone putting just their best life forward instead of real life, What advice do you give to anyone, really, but especially women with those obligations at home, to find that balance and that harmony between running their business, their volunteer goals and obligations, and then their family and and other personal commitments? I think that if you understand your family comes first, especially if you're raising one, you get no second chance at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that today in young men more than older men that they budget their time if they have children because they are actively engaged. I watch uh, sons-in-law and uh, uh, watch them engage from the minute that pregnancy is announced. They are equal caregivers, Mm -hmm. except for travel commitments on business usually with their wives. So it seems to me that we're seeing a cultural shift. I find those young men easy to hire and easy to work with in our company. And someone said, well, why? What's the difference? I said, because they were raised by women like me. <laughs> and they were engaged with their moms. They were going on appointments with them when there was no other child care provider. Right. So we were raising a generation of young men who realized that there was a partnership and that they should come to the table and participate as parents. And we're seeing that cultural shift, as you mentioned. Absolutely. Which I think is very positive, not just for our industry, which is, you know, majority female being the 
the realtor population, but also just for our culture and our society in general. There's a lot of times our industry gets knocked for being majority female, but there's a good reason. It's an emotional journey. Sure. Home buying is an emotional journey for most people, not everyone. Some buy it by the numbers. But on that emotional level, women respond more quickly. It's our nurturing instinct. Good men that do it do well in our business, too. Mm-hmm. And they are are coming. We're seeing more of them come into the business now because, again, they were raised being more nurtured and understanding nurturing. Right. So we're seeing a change, but women are always going to be the nurturers for the most part. Now, there's some, you know, I love the expression someone said to me, you're a steel magnolia. I said, you better believe it. Absolutely. I'm equal in the boardroom, but I'm also a lady and always will be. Sure. Well, and I think more so than men, strong women who often are the ones that have leadership aspirations are criticized in a, in a way that's very different. If, if a man acts a certain way, they're just a strong leader. If a woman acts a certain way, she's a word I'm not going to say on this podcast. <laughs> and I think that we're also seeing a shift there where that's less of the trend is to criticize a woman for being strong. It's, it, I think we're seeing, we're being praised a little more for that. Well, women are taking the initiative to say, hold it. I have a new president of so-and-so, and they're putting forward this, but not bragging, just e- reaching a point where they feel they can equalize the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that happens in a variety of ways with women. Now, someone said to me, when did you decide to be NIR president? And I said, well, I decided to run when asked. Um, I never went out other than Virginia president, which I did seek. And I broke that ceiling, too. Mm-hmm. I tell a story, and I tell, told it to women's council, and I heard gasp. I told it for the first time ever a few months ago. I said I was sitting in an executive committee meeting as a regional vice president for my state association. The seated president took me out of the room. He said, I need to talk to you. I said, what about, Mr. President? And he said, the past presidents have met and asked you to withdraw. Hmm. I said, withdraw my candidacy? He said, yes. I said, may I ask why the past presidents have issued that? He said, it's just not time for a lady. And I went, oh. Well, I believe I'm qualified. My board and my region did. That's why I agreed to run. You may assure the past presidents that I will play by the rules. If I do not win the nomination, I will not run from the floor. But you may also also assure the past presidents I intend to win the nomination. Right. I love that. And you did. Period. I said, we set out a plan. I went to every board in the state, offered them to teach, do a role-playing, what roundtable, whatever they needed. And I got to know people. Mm-hmm. I made new friends. Mm-hmm. I had a grand time. <laughs> it was a lot of work, but I had a grand time, and I won the nomination. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about sitting down and hearing others' leadership journeys is most of the people who have gotten to the point where they've they've set forth a goal and they've met it, they have fun along the way. They will always say how much hard work it was, but because there's a passion there, there's fun in it. It's a learning opportunity. It's a a chance to broaden horizons. And I love that that's a story that you tell as well. I think that's important. When I was doing a little research for this episode and I went to the NAR website and I read your biography that is there in the list of past presidents, I think one of the things that I'm most impressed with over and above your presidency for NAR is that you have continued to stay involved. And I have to admit, I stopped your Facebook page and I saw that your your local and your state association actively post photos of you at events. And one of the things that I adore about a lot of the leaders, men or women that I look up to, is they don't let their presidency be or their year as immediate past president be the end of their journey. When they're truly passionate, they stay involved. And I like to ask the question for you personally, what keeps you coming back year after year, giving your time, more time away from family and personal commitments and the opportunity to just go and have fun? What keeps you involved at your local and your state and the national association and with our industry? Uh, Because I'm in the industry. I own a company. Um, I am one of four partners that we merged our company, six companies, uh, 
20 years ago, and I'm engaged. If I expect and want my people to attend association events for networking, for knowledge, for personal growth, for to understand the culture of our company, we are all realtor blue, they need to feel an engagement. Mm-hmm. If I'm there and can take time out of my schedule, they should be engaged. They should volunteer. If nothing else, just participate. Right. And I encourage them to do so. Plus, it's my association. I want to help spot future leaders. I want to encourage them to continue on. Say at some point you're going to be leading because you have the ability. It's a matter of working it in your life schedule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't tell them to jump on it now and go after it. That's not how good leaders behave. Good leaders analyze and understand what they want to do. Now, let me give you a counterpoint to that. I had a woman come to work for me and said, I'm coming to work for you. And she had already, one of the managers had hired. And she said, one of the reasons I came here is because you've been president of this, this, and this. And I want to be president. She took out in the industry. And she said, how do I get there? I said, well, you start with a lot of hard work. No one gets, this is not a job where you carry the title and wave everyone and put on your resume and walk away. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong game. If you want to participate, go volunteer, get on a committee, get to work. She was shocked. Right. I believe it, though. I feel, I feel like we hear that story more than I'm comfortable with. We often hear our realtor members, and usually the ones who are not involved, question the value of membership. I see it on social media. Why do I have to pay these dues? In states where or marketplaces where to have access to the MLS because the association owns it. Now, that's not the case here in Atlanta. We have um, a very high non-realtor population that sell, and they're members of the MLS. But in most markets... Same in my market. Okay. So you understand that. Yes. The realtor, non-realtor value proposition is very important. But if we're not adequately communicating the value of membership, then we're also not adequately communicating the value of raising one's hand and volunteering. In a perfect world, where would you see some places for improvement of that messaging? What are, what what would you want those realtors to know that don't really understand the value of membership? Well, I think it goes back to company culture. Uh, one of the questions I had at the leadership session this morning was, how do we get our brokers involved, the major brokers? Mm-hmm. And if the brokers are not really supportive because they believe in the mission of your association, their agents will not feel that connection necessarily. But that means you have to go back to that level of their managers and get them engaged because they influence their offices. And that is a key, one key to getting engagement. And those people do provide good leaders, especially if they're running big offices mm-hmm. very successfully. So you have a different culture, but it starts with the broker. Um, those who choose not to, and in a transaction, let me just stop and say the facts. When you get a transaction in a hot market where you know you're going to get two or three offers on every listing, you understand the standard and the ethics behind those offers, especially with the agent on the other side if it's a buyer's agent. You want to know that you can take that person to the bank. If you've met them at a realtor function, you've developed an eyesight. If you've worked with them, you understand each other. If that comes in from ABC across the way who's not a realtor, whom you have no, has no professional reputation, to bank on, and you're working with your client, you owe that client, aren't you? and they ask you, what do you think about this agent? Can I take him back? I do not know they're not a realtor. Right. But I've worked with this agent. We've got three agents here. We can either counter all, we can come back with, bring us your highest and best, whatever you wish to do. The documentation's in place. I have checked the qualification letters from a a qualified lender that can that can close. That's a big one today in mm-hmm, our market. Mm-hmm. And all those things that fall in line. So it does make a difference professionally. Absolutely. I agree with that. The multiple offer situation, I think, is one of the most telling because we see that a lot in our market. Low inventory. The good properties generally get more than one offer. And we do, we are able to illustrate the realtor versus non-realtor difference and the the realtors that I know through involvement versus the ones I've never heard of. And when your seller asks you, what do you know about these offers? I've had X number of transactions. This person has held up their end. They followed through in a very positive manner to serve their client because they are a client. But they're honorable, they're honest, and they will bring it to the table 
in the way that the law requires. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. And the issues there are clean. Um, it's amazing to me, I talk with a lot of agents who are not realtors. And they'll say, well, why do your people do this? And why do they do that? I said, well, we teach them. Right. Why didn't my listing sell? I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> your price is wrong. Right. What do you mean my price is wrong? I said, actually, you're about 50000 too low. And people looking in that price point are looking for a better product than you're advertising. And you've got the product and have the price wrong. Right. What do you mean I've got a price wrong? Everyone in, I said, waterfront is worth more than street front. Mm. And your broker should tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She had no idea. Wow. Well, I didn't know her anything. And she's, well, I said, you have a broker. It's not time for you to go to them. Right. You don't want to get real estate advice from someone you don't work for. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I was helpful and not very nice because, you know, it, it, I was just amazed. She was working hard and not realizing, well, she didn't have to pay the dues. I mean, not understanding what you get from NAR daily in your name stream, all of the help you get, how to handle your clients, how to do a better job. The things that we do as an industry to protect the consumer and strengthen the professionalism of our agents. Wow. Yeah. It's mind-boggling when you aren't someone who is in it every day. When you, and I love when you see that light bulb go on, when you explain it to someone in your office who isn't involved or that you are in a transaction with and they ask you about it or someone you meet at a networking event. When you see that light bulb come on and you know you've converted someone to, converted might be the wrong word, <laughs> but you've influenced them. You've, you've given them some information that they didn't know to before. show that there's value that can improve their earning capacity, their knowledge, and their competence. If they're a professional, they want to do those things. Now, there are a lot of them out there that think they know it all. Mm-hmm. They're never going to change. Right. Right. They're here today. They may be gone tomorrow. And will they have clients for the future referring them? Who knows? Right. It, so, again, reading over your bio on the NAR website, there was something that struck me because we've just experienced something similar now a few decades later. During your tenure as president, NAR leadership and our lobbyists were working for an increase in FHA loan limits, which... I know you know, just happened again. And the repeal of some of the closing cost restrictions, we just saw that happen again at the beginning of this year, which I think, and I think many agree, was overdue, much overdue in the economy that we're in now. What similarities do you see in the market then and the market now that had led to some pretty landmark legislation to raise those loan limits again, to open up the doors for homeownership in that way First of all, the National Association of Realtors is doing a better job lobbying. We're doing that with data. We're doing that with research. The things that are dues fund that people do not realize. We know what the consumer habits are, where they're buying, what the restrictions are. We can talk about the percentages of minorities represented in the areas of being redlined, are being treated fairly, what's the bellwether. We know because we study that. We have the access of those MLSs across the country feeding data to research up in D.C., one of the finest research departments in the United States of any type of trade association. We speak with authority because we speak with knowledge. And then we become partners in good legislation. And because we are now, in this age and time, and have been for many years now, totally bipartisan, we don't care what label you wear, independent, Democrat, Republican, It's about issues of American private property owners and the ability of the American potential home buyer to own that home and own it and have a piece of the pie. We're unique in that. Mm -hmm. No country around the world has the percentage of home ownership that we do from new citizens and from existing citizens and young people. We must protect that and defend it and make sure that the lending institutions and the institutions that make those loans do it honorably, honestly, without usurious rates, and there is some protection for consumer built in. That's Absolutely. critical. And one thing that was very near and dear to my heart, I was chair of federal financing and housing policy a few years ago, effectively lobbying to do away with the VA county loan limits, which just happened in the fall. And to me, to give a group of people who have served our country the right to buy a house with 100% financing, but then cap that right. Mm-hmm almost arbitrarily, depending on home prices in those areas, but all, but all, almost not taking into account some of the most important data, which is 
if they're qualified for it, why aren't we giving it to them? Why are we putting that cap? So seeing that happen was very near and dear to my heart. But again, back to your point, it was the data and it was the access to data that we didn't have even 10 years ago. That's right. That's correct. And one of the other things that I found was really interesting that it seemed from reading and doing some research and using that wonderful um, NAR library and research department that we all have access to that's, I think, a very little-known fact. So I'm glad you brought that up, was some things that you were working toward in your presidency that I feel like we're still fighting for and working for. Um, increasing the need and the legislation for transparent seller disclosure, as well as uh, buyer brokerage, which was sort of on the rise when you were president. My dad was realtor in the 80s, and I remember MLS books, and I remember sub-agency, and I remember there not being buyer brokers. And further agency discussions, which were happening when, when you were president, but they're continuing to happen now. Actually, they started. Uh, when I was president, I appointed Sharon Millett, who became president, second woman president, to chair the agency study task force. So he came back with a report, and he said, well, we've got to take this to the board of direction and get action. I said, no. And he about had a fit. He'd already decided it was going. And I said to him, no, and to my leadership team, this is a state issue. This information must go to the states. Because I don't think that the uh, licensing officials in 50 states are going to take NAR policy as their policy. Mm. They're going to look at their own regulations, their own processes, and they will make it work within their governance structures. Mm -hmm. Virginia is a commonwealth. Some are states. You know, you have everyone operating differently. And that's exactly what happened. NAR did not dictate agency policy, but identified agency as an issue and buyer broker agency as an issue that must be dealt with and and then taking it to the state licensing officials, the state general assemblies to pass the appropriate laws so that it worked within each state. I'm proudest of that. Mm-hmm. But I got a lot of criticism not, for not taking that to the board of directors, but to saying, no, it needs to be released to the states for action. Well, and looking back, when I took my licensing classes and test and remembering and talking to my dad who who moved from being a realtor into the lending side of things but talking to him about sub-agency and and buyers not having representation it seems now it was just the right thing to do for only one party in a transaction to have the ability to have representation seems absurd when you talk to newer licensees who don't have a family history in the business they almost that's almost mythical And there was another issue. Sharon brought to the forefront the study group that she chaired, and she did a phenomenal job of it. She's real academic. Was that every seller in America who had a sub-agent was liable for the actions of that agent they had no control over. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Especially since that sub-agent represented them. Right. And so everything that that agent did, in effect, put some liability on that seller. And when I think about it now, writing CE classes, for example... And that, again, being a state-by-state issue with their real estate commissions, having to prove consumer benefit when we are getting classes approved for CE, the biggest benefit that we've given to consumers is the ability for every party in the transaction to have their own representation. At whatever level they, they deem fit under the state laws. Absolutely. It's a, it's a big, important development, and I thank you for that. <laughs> So I love that the buyer brokerage and the agency discussions and victories are one of the things you're most proud of. What's your favorite memory from your year as president of the National Association? Oh, there's a lot of great memories. Some of them are just plain fun. You know, you think about the times. I, I mean, I got to Hawaii, uh, which was my exit convention, and the, and the group of ladies invited me to a penthouse at some friend of theirs owned, and they had a full reception for all their relative friends around, and I got invited. And I've never seen so much fun in my life. Those girls were a ball, and I'll always have a memory. And Vi Dolman was the grand dom of real estate. She was the Harry Contra of Hawaii, and she's no longer with us. Um, and, you know, she was holding court. Uh, let's see, what was some of the really strange things. Oh, I'm not sure I should put this one on. <laughs> I went to one RPAC celebration. Let's just say it out west where it's Cowboy World and... Uh, 
small associations and I mean you know it's a whole different environment when you get uh, 2,500 members spread over a state the size about four times of Georgia mm-hmm. and uh, when they get together it's you know you have the rough and ready crowd and they had an RPAC fundraiser and uh, there was the president of the Farm and Land Institute was there and, and some of his members who were raising RPACs mooned him. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> I remember that one forever. <laughs> but it was, but you know, it was just they had a lot to drink. <laughs> <laughs> I did one uh, leadership conference for a group uh, where I flew in in a tiny plane, and it was a snowstorm. And when I stepped off the plane, which is the little bitty roll down steps, I stepped into about eight inches of snow, and um, the realtors who picked me up said, "Oh yeah, you came in this." He said, you know, we, a lot of people waiting on that little old plane to get in. There weren't many passengers on it, but the, the, t- the tower announced, well, we got a baby pilot coming out of Colorado. Let's see if he knows how to land in snow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they told you that after the fact. Thank goodness, yeah. And um, then we went to the, then they had a dinner after all stuff was over, the dinner, because everyone, you know, had to spend nicest distances. And we went to this, it was December. And we went to this truck stop for the dinner, but the truck stop was huge. It had all these restaurants and had groups of drillers and miners, and they were having their Christmas dinners and what have you. And and I realized that um, the group that I, you know, they had a couple of, everyone drove a couple of these these big SUVs, and they came out together, maybe three trucks. And I realized that the guy driving my truck had a, he was a commercial guy, had a little, I thought a little bit too much to drink. So much as so, I said, "Why don't you let me drive?" <laughs> now here I am in the middle of a snowstorm, in the middle of a state I don't know, in a little town I've never been in my life. I said, "You just direct me, I'll drive." And of course, being not experienced driving in that much snow, we drove very carefully. Sure. So they sang Christmas carols all the way to town. <laughs> what an experience, though. I mean, I had a great time. Absolutely. And I still think, smile and laugh because I love those people. Yes. Uh, when I was running for office, I flew into a meeting in western, eastern Montana, and I don't remember the name of the town to save me, but they produce most of the kitty litter clay in America. And then the gal who was president was a good friend of mine coming in as president, and she lived in the other side, and I was flying out the other side because I'd driven over, been in the car and driven over, and she said to me, you know... You like to antique. I like to antique. You don't have to go back to so-and-so. Why don't we go across? We turn in your rental car, and we'll just go antiquing. And I went, okay. So we get in, and I didn't realize that Montana's speed limits were about 75 at that time. But if you went over 80, no higher than 85 or 90, you could pay the fine on the spot to $5, and it didn't go on your record to the trooper. Of course, there's no one on the road anyway. And so we did that. We put 1,100 miles in that car in three days. We went to all these little towns and took the antique shopper. And we, she'd call everybody at 7 in the morning. Oh, yeah, I've got it. That antique's checked in the house. Come on over. 7 in the morning. <laughs> I bought some gorgeous things. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. How many times did you have to stop and pay that $5 fine? <laughs> she did. I didn't. <laughs> but coming back, I left her, I think, in Missoula. And then I took rented a car to go back to Great Falls to fly out. And I'm going around 85 because I know the rules now. And there got guys in a pickup truck sitting over the side with rifles, shooting. I think I hit 100 if we're going by them. I would go take any chances. <laughs> I guess they were hunting. You know, I had no idea. Right. But there was no one else on the road. These were expressways, so sure. unbelievable. Yeah. You, you could hear a lot of laughing and having a good time. with These are the strange and fun things that happen. Absolutely. And travel, I feel travel as a realtor breeds those kinds of stories. Getting to go to different markets, getting to... Well, I think we're better about things today. We don't have had a good time without getting plastered. <laughs> <laughs> and we're more sensitive. And the young people, the millennials, are not drinking that much. Right. They'll drink wine, they'll drink gourmet beers, but they're not drinking a lot. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, in addition to being NAR president, if if we take that off the table as as one of their possible answers, what has been your second favorite role in the realtor industry? Oh, um, well, I've always said, and I didn't say this this morning, that Perhaps the most challenging role, because you're brand new into a real leadership fire, is local association. Mm-hmm. And if you're a really good president, 
when you're finished, you'd be a better one because you know all the things you could have done that you didn't do mm-hmm. because you continue to learn. Mm-hmm. Those that take their bowels and check out, and there are a lot of those. Of course. They never come to another state meeting. They don't even come to the local meetings anymore, maybe a year or two after, after they get off their, their leadership team. But they don't come back for love of the industry. Right. right. And so uh, I think that every part of that journey has been special for me. Um, and I still enjoy that journey. I make sure, because I'm growing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we have a, a, a very active member engaged at a certain level, you know, not percentage high, uh, at our local association. Um, we have Realtor Law. You know, they've done something very clever to get agents out feed them. But what they do is they invite the um, affiliates to host a government affairs is big. And then we have four sub-government chairs on there because we represent four cities. And then we have a realtor lawyer and we have a panel of three lawyers talking about hot issues. That's always worth my time. And then the member um, manager, um, manager of what they call it, the manager council, broker manager council is good. I don't go to those all the time depending on top, topic matter. But I will go and participate because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And then we have the, um, uh, what is we have a group that's something with the heart, realtors for the heart, and they do charity projects. I don't go to a lot of those, but they do paint your heart out. Night, they we do murals for a uh, one of the children's homes. Oh wow! And so I I show up to that. I can't paint worth two shakes, but I throw on some paint, do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm sure that it, then they have a group that touch up all of our work because they just can't paint. <laughs> But what a great way to bring realtors together. Yeah. And have things like that. Well, I told, you know, the YPNs do some interesting stuff that, uh, of course, YPNs are doing things differently. And I, that's mm-hmm. what I emphasize to the state pre- uh, board presidents at EOs today. The YPNs are your missile. They're firing for the future. They do not do the same things. At our association, they do a, a annual kickball tournament with the affiliates. They challenge. I said, how many of you here could play kickball? <laughs> and only the young people raised their hand in the right. group this morning. And it's a kickball tournament. They come to events that they sponsor. They sponsored a committee, um, what they call it, a committee um, fair the other day for the, for the association for this year. A committee fair went. Every committee had a table. They had to decorate with something along their theme and give out they had sponsored door prizes for each of those, and of course, wine, you know, a little wine out if people wanted it, and, and hors d'oeuvres sponsored by affiliates. And a lot of young people showed up, and you went booth to booth and got your thing stamped so that, and, and talked to the people running the committees and see what you were interested in. That's such a great idea. And of course, they had the YPN committee double booth. Of course, they did. That's and right. It really was fun. And they did this, and of course, they gave it was their meeting. That's great. I love that idea. I'm going to take that back to my local. And Isn't that and awesome? It's fantastic. Yeah, because these are the future. And so they, it was an RPAC fundraiser. The key was to raise X number of dollars by RPAC by the time they got through. And they got some new, uh, what they could, they've got to 50 level, 550 level, $1,000. You know, they were after those. And then they've got the uh, fair share, which is $35, which mm-hmm. is our board's fair share. Mm-hmm. And so they said, we're four short of a fair share of having this goal. And they were four guys standing there with beer bottles, you know. Sure. And they, and they looked at each other and said, you got your four. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but you know, which is fun. Yes. It was their event. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned. Now, do you think the 50 and 60 year old, 40, 50s and 60 year olds have the time to do that? The 40 years were there. But you think about it, people get too busy. Right. Right. You mentioned, I want to go back to an interesting point that you made, because I agree with it. You said one of the most challenging roles is at the local level. Yes, absolutely. And so my pers- my personal involvement was somewhat unorthodox. I began at the national level right around the time that NAR started the Young Professionals Network. Yes. And it was right when they, the focus started to be on bringing YPNers into involvement. And they were looking for people and they were sort of plucking us. Like, we'd like you to serve on this. I was on Issues Mobilization Committee. And I'll tell you, I still to this day... Amazed, aren't you? I sat on those calls and I didn't say a word because I I didn't know what I was doing. And I think about my first couple of mid-year and annual that I went to. And I remember sitting in the hallway, and I tell this story a lot when I teach leadership, sitting in the hallway waiting for Bobby Howe to get out of committee meeting because she and Brian Copeland were the only two people that I knew at that moment. And Charlie Oppler came walking down the hallway and introduced himself to me. 
and I didn't know who he, I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't know I him from Charlie Adam. I love Charlie Opler. I love Charlie Opler. And, but he introduced himself to me in a moment where I wasn't talking to anybody because I didn't know anybody. And then later that day, I went to a YPN reception and Ron Phipps introduced himself to me. And here I am talking to a past president, and at the time we didn't know, a future president. And next year, I'm actually one of Charlie's liaisons, which is, when I look back at that journey, it's amazing to me. But what I always think about is, at every level, it can be so intimidating and so confusing to raise your hand that first time and dip your toe in those waters, to show up where you know. That's why you must feel welcomed. Thank That's you. It. It's all about feeling welcome. And our job at any level, and I meant to mention it at the presence this morning, is when you walk into that room as president of your local association, everyone wants a piece of you. You've got a transaction working with them. They've got a committee issue they want you to talk about. They want your attention. Your job is to say, let's get back to that. I've got to welcome the newcomers today and identify every face you don't know and make sure they feel like they're welcome. You know why? You want them to come back. You want mm-hmm. to be back at the table and participate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would have come back. That first meeting was really scary. It was scary, but you felt a connection. Absolutely. And that's the way it is. And those moments are so important. We, I said at a meeting, I sat down with some folks at one of these things that you grab a sandwich and there's, you know, just tables together. And I said, I said, can I join you? And I chatted with them. A gal from California I knew she was involved in professional standards and heavily and her husband was a guest. And when I stood in line to pick up my soup, this young gal was there, and she had a foreign accent, and she's coming out looking for And I went in to pick up some. I said, you know, we've got some seats today. Well, come on over set with us. Well, her name was Asa, and I've forgotten her last name. She was a tech person with NAR out of D.C., and Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I said, oh, come on, sit with us. You just sit with realtors. We won't bite. <laughs> and then we started chatting, and... and uh, we said, and the other gal said, well, where are you from? She said, well, I'm from Ukraine. And she said, my husband's family's from Ukraine. Well, from that point on, it, it became a whole new conversation. Absolutely. I mean, she was a staff person. She emailed me and said, thank you. She said, I've never felt so welcomed. I love that. And, and to continue a little bit of the conversation about YPN as well, they have a great mantra. And I've been so impressed with what comes out of YPN at the national level. And a lot of state and locals are doing some great things, too, with their networks. But the national uh, YPN started this replace yourself mentality. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you get on a committee that you love and you kind of just want to park there. But the purpose originally of YPN was to breed people that are going to move on to other roles. And they even use that hashtag, you know, a lot on social media, hashtag replace yourself. What responsibility do you think we have as leaders to be looking for our replacements? That's why we have these leadership sessions, because that is the role. Leslie Ruder Smith's going to be president in a couple of years. I followed her father. Uh, Holly Ruder was probably the most brilliant businessman I could have ever met at the time. He uh, had the largest real estate company in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He gave him enough money to the University of Ohio. They named the business center, the big building in his honor. And um, he said to me um, when I was his chair, president-elect, he said, you know, health and I've got a big job to do. It's a serious job and I'm going to do it well. He said, but I have another job to do. I have to make sure you're prepared to step in these shoes. He meant it. Mm-hmm. I knew it. Mm-hmm. He was a great mentor to me. And on issues where he was making tough calls, he would discuss them with me as to where his thinking was. He helped me grow intellectually to be ready to, to do the job. Mm-hmm. And then gave me tough assignments. That's one of the things I've loved about working with Charlie, but also the ladies that sat down with me this morning and the leadership team here in Georgia is that feeling of, it's that welcoming feeling, but now that I'm not, you know, quote unquote new anymore, it's that continued feeling of encouragement, personal growth. When I have a challenge, I had a conversation with Dory Love, our president-elect this morning, when I had a challenging issue to deal with, but also just those little words of encouragement Mm -hmm. along the way. And I think especially as women, we have that responsibility coming back to to women leadership and Women's History Month. I think we have that responsibility to be reaching out and not just welcoming the newer members, but making sure that they have that continued feeling Mm -hmm. of engagement. Absolutely. And you said replace yourself. And that's exactly the truth. I think that, again, women are more conscious of that than men. 
and we do a good job of mentoring along because we realize we have must have that. Women's Council is occupying that role in space that needs to be occupied. Women's Council was going in a, in a lull and now it's come back stronger. But I'm seeing it come back stronger because it's identifying young women who want to learn to lead mm-hmm. and they want to learn to, and take some responsibility. Not, they don't start out being want to be president of the state, but they want to be they want to learn and they want to grow and they want to show that they can do things. And women's council is offering that heavily to women of diversity. Mm-hmm. And they're taking and running with it. And the group around them is giving them a lot of support. That's exciting. Because that's where our new volunteers are going to come from into our local associations ready to take it on with some confidence because they've already had some experience. And I like that they also, a lot of my experiences with women council, women's council have been that they are also teaching that those leadership lessons are valuable in your business as well. They're not just saying this is going to help you in a volunteer role that you don't get paid for. They're saying we're going to teach you all of these lessons that are valuable in any facet of your life. It's also going to help you to reach those leadership goals. Well, the leadership skills that are developed to lead others out in your association life or in your volunteer life are skills that you translate from being successful in your sales life. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're very similar. It's knowing how to translate those from one area to the other because those who are good salespeople understand how to guide, be trusted advisors. They're not demanding. They're leading their customers to a process. We don't call it that because people don't like the idea that they're being led. But they like the idea that they're being counseled they're like the idea they have an advisor. And that's a leadership role in sales. If you're extremely good at it, those skills are very similar to getting engaged and taking the next role in your association. Mm-hmm. As long as you couple that with being a good student, learning to grow, learning to change when you need to and as you need to because circumstances and the environments change. Switching gears a little bit, what do you love to do outside of real estate? Oh, I'm a professional volunteer. <laughs> I have been blessed because um, I have been in the boardroom. Um, I chaired a five-city Hampton Roads Chamber of Commerce. I started my local city. We then merged them five cities. From that, I was asked to take uh, membership at the State Chamber of Commerce, Virginia Chamber. Very high-powered. Mm-hmm. And uh, I chaired that. Um, I ended up at a high holy day service one day getting nailed by a gentleman who was president of the Home Builders, National Home Builders, and the Federal uh, Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And he said, I've got it approved by city council. You're coming on the TCC board. I said, what? Stanley? I said, I don't know anything about TCC. He said, I've got a war going on in a board. The college and four campuses are at stake. You're a smart businesswoman. I've already gotten the mayor to approve you. You're getting appointed this week. I said, okay, I'll do what I can. That got me hooked on community college service. Um, we were the 35th largest in the country uh, with challenges in a community because we served such a diverse um, community. We had to hire a president. The board was very split. And I found myself quietly advising board members who'd say to me, why did you ask this question? What do you think about so-and-so? And we ended up hiring the right president. I spent uh, eight years, on a total of 11 by accident. I got I had an unexpired term I fell and then two and I was chair of the board, enjoying it because we were doing so much with state and governance, big foundation, then a real estate foundation, which I was also president of. Um, and the issues, uh, I ended up chairing it twice. And from that, they had got the political appointments to put me on the, uh, the uh, state um, board, which I served on six years, did a lot of flying around the state with the ch- chancellor chaired it, and then I did not ask the second governor. I could have been reappointed. I did not ask for reappointment. didn't want a reappointment. I got a lot of crap over from the state. Why don't you want me to I said, I've given a lot of time and talent. I've been the most joyous thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. However, people think I've retired. They're not seeing enough of me in my community because right. I was so engaged. on So I went on another board called Virginia Vision, which is a political analyst board statewide interviewing candidates it's not a realtor they don't endorse they're strictly issue oriented we're trying to keep them that way i was amazed i had only two women on that board and the reason i was i'm an entrepreneur if you work for someone you speak the company lingo if you're mm-hmm. an entrepreneur you speak your your own language and i'm politically pretty savvy mm-hmm. um and so I, and then i chaired the virginia aquarium board we raised a lot of money i had that i was president up at Ann chairman um, and that, of course, is just what it is, Virginia's Aquarium. 
and it's left down a lot of things. Oh, and I have, I gave birth to no sons, but I was the first woman chair of the Tidewater Council of Boy Scouts of America. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> that was fascinating. That was the most frustrating job I ever had. Men weren't going to change. <laughs> <laughs> The old boys are going to do it their way. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts, and I was a troop leader for quite some time. So I, I applaud Keep, anyone oh, it's awesome. who works with kids and, and in, that, in that scout capacity. Such yeah, a great so opportunity. I, I took the chairmanship. And, the, and I, I was getting ready to resign because I'd been on too long and didn't feel I was making the contribution I needed to other than raising a lot raising good money for them. Um, and they met with me and said, with being a military area, so many women are leading troops. We need to show that we're recognizing that leadership. You're the ideal woman to do it. So we discussed some issues, and I said to them, you know you're asking a single Jewish woman with no sons. At that time, uh, I was widowed. And uh, I had two, I have two wonderful stepsons, both one from each marriage, but, uh, mm-hmm. but no sons of my own. So. Well, and I know, obviously, I admire your pin. You are a passionate RPAC supporter. I know you're very politically savvy. And that is the one other place where I feel like we have challenge showing value to the non-believers or the non-investors. So when someone says to you, what's your elevator speech? When someone says to you, why should I even make my fair share? Okay, well, it depends on the issue at hand. Um, Okay, how many of you sold something to FHA, VA, Fannie or Freddie this week? How many of you acquired flood insurance? How many of you did a, you know, and when you were doing um, distress sales, it was one thing, you know, keep changing the lingo. Mm-hmm. How important is the ability to the American public to buy a home with no down payment? No one speaks for America's homeowners but you. You do it through 1,400,000 of us who support NAR. We understand that no one's speaking for that little homeowner. Right. And the big ones who, who pay 10 and $20 million don't care. We care. Right. You care. You have to care. Absolutely. Even if you just care with a check. And your way of caring is being a voice, helping voices be heard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I want to end with a now question. That's a, a two-minute elevator yes. speech. That's no, it's, I, I, my, the other thing I like to say is... And I'm bold. You hear my voice. I drop it low. Of course. And I'm bold. Mm-hmm. And I'm powerful. I speak from the lungs. So I understand that I have to sound differently when I do those things. Mm-hmm. And I like to ask how many people in the room realize that we are the only lobbying machine that doesn't just fight for our industry. Because you don't see the tobacco lobbyists out there lobbying for the rights of smokers. We're out there lobbying not just for us as realtors, but every single person who owns a home, wants to own a home, has owned a home. Try to couch your language in emotional words. You mm-hmm. speak for. Mm-hmm. Right. You're the voice of. Place the old voice of real estate. But when you do that even with your own people, if you try to use emotional words, you'll get a better response. Last question. <laughs> I have a question that I want to ask every guest that comes on the podcast because as realtors or as anyone who works in the real estate industry... We help people find their dream homes. So what does your dream home look like? It can be anywhere, any style. If money, work, location, and convenience were not factors, what does the ideal of dream home look like to Gorgas? Oh, a home to me is warm. It's caring. It's the personality you put in it by the family pictures and the artwork and the things. It really doesn't matter where. I want it well-maintained. I don't want too much yard at this stage of my life. <laughs> I don't mind a gardener, but I, you don't know, know me. Uh, but the, the home is not about the sticks and bricks. Mm-hmm. It's about what goes in it. That's the heart. And the heart of the home is what we make it. That's lovely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I so appreciate you sitting down with me. And we could sit and do this all day. I but, fun doing but I don't know if again. anyone would listen to seven hours. But you know, no, you don't want to do that. Little clips here and there are fine. And I appreciate getting to know you a little better and having your time today. Yeah. And I'm excited that you're participating. We're trying to tap leadership nationwide to be in the trenches. We've got good leadership coming up, and a lot mm-hmm. of people want to come up. We really do. And um, I remind some people that it's 
that age is not to be discriminated either as long as people can stay current and ready to participate. We've got a lot of great second career people coming into this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I'll, and I, we do recruit those. Someone said, well, I mean, they never old. I said, for 10 years we had so-and-so before we retired the second time. If you look back at the numbers he produced for this company, it'll take someone else 25 years to do what he did for, them, for us. Understand, it's not about age. It's about mind, attitude, what have you. If they're 18 years old with a real estate license, if they're 80 with a real estate license, if they're ready and vibrant, viable, and part of life, and willing to work hard, what more can you ask for? I couldn't agree more. Me too. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Mara. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Georgia Realtors Realcast. You can find us online at garealcast.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe to us. Apparently, it helps others to find us and it boosts our ratings. Have a great one.